Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. We all love the story of an overnight success. I've got one for you. Um, Jeremy and Diego and myself have recently joined a volleyball league. And we joined a team that was already existing. I think this is week four or week five. And uh, on our team is a 60-year-old woman. She's, uh, we call it, I call her El Capitana because she's our captain. Um, she knows the rules and that's why she's the captain because no one else knows the rules. And we've got two year nine boys. And uh, we are a, a, a team of misfits. We are an unlikely team. And you can imagine us walking into the stadium the first night Chariots of fire in the background, this sort of ragtag team walking in together. And we stump up to our first game and we get absolutely just destroyed. And then our next game is straight after, back to back, and we get destroyed again. And not only that, Diego blows his, his knee out and so he's, he's on injured reserve, he's out for the season. And Diego, uh, Jeremy and I are sort of having a quiet, unspoken conversation around whether we should continue or not. Things are not looking good. Our team does not look competitive at all. And uh, we decide we're going to stick to our words. We're going to keep in the volleyball league. And we rock up the next week, not expecting much of ourselves, expecting to just get destroyed again. But what do you know? We pull out a win, this ragtag volleyball team. Okay, we've got a little bit of momentum now. And then into the next week, we rock up and we find out we're playing the, the team that won the grand final last year. And so we're not, we're not liking our chances, but we absolutely destroyed them. It was a massacre. Now, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, now, I would conveniently left out that we're in grade C and the other team, this championship team, are made up of like 15, 16-year-old girls. Um, but that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. They were, they were defeated, they were crying. <clears throat> and, you know, when we were planning out, this was only like a couple of weeks in the season, putting it in my calendar. After we lost that first game, I, didn't, I decided not to put the grand final into the calendar because I just assumed we weren't going to be there. But I've since put it back in just in case we get to the grand final. We love the story of an overnight success. We are addicted to that story. You know, the, the story of the, the, you know, the tech company that blows up overnight or the influencer that comes out of nowhere, the, dream, the dream of kind of overnight success of our property exploding in value or Bitcoin going up or, uh, you know, sudden social media fame and our followers going up all of a sudden. We want our business to grow. We want to cr- climb the kind of corporate ladder or the the roles that we're in in work. We want success. We're driven by success. We love that story within our culture. And this kind of happens undoubtedly all, th- all through our lives, not just in our work, but not just in volleyball, but in all sorts of places, right? We want to have the best house, the most aesthetic house. We want to have the best holidays that look the best on Instagram. We want to have the best church, we want to have the best kids. You know, parents, you know what I'm talking about, how you like silently uh, judging your kid next to the other kid that's their same age. This happens all the time. 
Um, all, our other, all our other friends' kids in church were walking at like seven months or something, and Milo's just sitting there doing nothing until <laughs> he's like 13 months. And we're like, oh, gosh. And at, in that point, I'm not about success. You know, it's not about success. It's just about relationship, creating a loving home. But then we worked out there's something that he is good at, and so suddenly I'm about success again. He's, he's actually very good at speaking. We worked out this when he started to say dandelion. This is like his sixth word or something. And we, we obviously Googled how many words should, you know, uh, 18-month-old, he's 18 months old today, this is a couple of months ago, should they speak? And they're saying the baseline is, is four words. Good is 40. And then like genius level, elite level is 170. So obviously the first thing we're doing is we're counting out all the words, right? We're listing them down. We get to 40 easy. We get to like over 100. And then the next day, like, we still do it. He says a new word. We're like, add it to the list. We're going to get to 170 because we have this innate desire to have the best. We're driven by competition and comparison. And for my kid to be advanced means that another kid is not. Or for my kid to be slow at walking means another kid is better than him. For me to get that promotion means that someone else didn't. For me to win means that someone else has to lose. Comparison is the thief of joy, the old saying goes. And competition can be great, can bring the best out of us, like our ragtag volleyball team, but it can also bring the worst out in us. I remember when I was 17 and I first got my P's. I'm glad mum's not here this morning because she doesn't know this, but we decided to go street racing, uh, me and my friends, up in... Uh, up in kind of Mangrove Mountain, there was a new development. And it was, it was a perfectly fine road. It's fine. It's all good. The three of us line up. My friend in a Holden Apollo 1991. My other friend in 1993 uh, Ford Fiesta. Blue, obviously. They're all always blue. And I had my sister's Saab 9000, which is built like a tank. It's like five tons. It's made of like solid iron. It's like the slowest thing you've ever seen. And, you know, we have someone at the front with the flag. It's just a straight road, quarter mile, obviously, and then a little turn at the end. And we go. The flag goes down. We're away. Ford Fiesta's obviously behind us. It's me and Holden Apollo. I'm sneaking ahead. Still in the speed limit. Don't worry about it. And we get to the, the end of the road where the, the road turns slightly. And I freak out, so I, I slow down. And Holden Apollo just keeps going. Doesn't slow down at all. And he spins around does a 180 into the curb and bends the axles of his car and it's a write-off. And I uh, had to sheepishly call his parents and get the tow truck and, and all that. All that to say is that competition can bring the best out of us but often causes us to go beyond our limits, causes us to crash. So what's the answer? If as followers of Jesus, we're not called to competition or comparison, if that's actually an unhelpful way to live our lives, what's the answer? Should we just chill out? Just live life with apathy? Should we just not do anything? Should we never just desire to do big things or have goals in our career or our family? I want to read what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. This is the parable of the talents. It says this, again, the kingdom of God can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. 
He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave, them, he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. He then left on the trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant of the two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more, but the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the handling of the small amount, so now I will give you more, many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling the small amount, so I'll give you more, many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag of silver came to the master and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man. Harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you just deposit my money in the bank? At least I would have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from his servant and give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It takes a real dark turn at the end there. <laughs> this is a parable that Jesus tells. And what this tells me is that Jesus does not look fondly. He's not impressed with those that bury the gifts they've been given, that do nothing with what they've been given in life, their family, their career, their life, their gifts. He calls us to do something with what we have. And so we can rage against like comparison or success or climbing the corporate ladder, but the opposite isn't the answer either, just to bury what we've been given. We are actually called to do something with what we've been given. Now, Jesus is not expecting the servants to be something other than what they have. He only expected the guy with five bags to bring five more, the guy with two bags to bring two more, the guy with one bag, presumably, to bring one more. And sometimes we can get caught up looking to the left and the right of us of like, that person's got five bags, that person's got one bag. We get like just comparing against what's going on in, in their world rather than caring about what's with us. The dude with the one bag is freaking out because everyone else has got more money. I don't know what to do. Maybe I'll lose it. He's expecting you to be faithful with your gifts, your career, your bank account, your living situation, your marriage, your singleness. He's not expecting you to be anyone but you. He's not ex expecting you to beat anyone else. 
Now, here's the thing. Success in the kingdom is not defined by comparing to others, but by being faithful to what we've been called to. The Bible is full of people who did big, successful things. The kind of Eden impulse right in the start of the Christian narrative is to be fruitful and multiply. Go and take what you've been given in the garden and go and spread it out into the world. Noah built an ark even when there was no rain. An incredible feat of engineering. Abraham left everything, left his family, left his land to go somewhere else, which was unheard of. You would never leave your family. You would never leave your land. You would never go somewhere else. Joseph became second in command of the most powerful empire in the world, even though his brothers threw him into slavery. Moses took on an empire and and freed a million slaves, even though he said he was too scared to talk. He didn't speak well. David took on Goliath, even though he was a shepherd boy. Jesus took on flesh, even though he was God. The apostles started a movement that has shaped the world, even though they weren't the educated elite. And the common thread in all these stories, all these kind of biblical stories, is that people did something with what God had given them. They all did massive, world-changing things, but not from a place of comparison, like what everyone else is doing, not from a place of competition, of like getting above the person next to me, but from a place of calling. What has God called me to do? I love this kind of case study between Saul and David. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he had overnight success. He was a a, a random dude from the tribe of Benjamin, obviously the best tribe, but it's the smallest tribe in Israel. And Saul was just a dude rolling around. Israel decided they want a king, and there was a a prophet named Samuel, and Samuel said, this is the dude that's going to be king. And so, so Samuel goes and finds this kid, Saul, just out of nowhere, Overnight success, anoints him as king, that very moment he's king of the country. Just from a nobody to a king, the next month he was in battle, leading Israel into battle. He had overnight success, all the stuff that kind of we dream about in our culture. But things turned because he began to reject God. And so because Saul rejects God, God wants to appoint a new king, anoint a new king. And he does kind of the same thing again. He goes to like this obscure place. There's a family, there's a father named Jesse, he had a bunch of sons, he was just part of just, you know, some tribe, there wasn't anything special about them. Jesse comes, uh, Samuel comes to anoint the king, Jesse like lines up all these sons and all these like good looking men and he says no, 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 until eventually he said, do you have any more sons? He's like, oh yeah, there's one I forgot about, he's in the back, we'll go get him. And that was David. And he's anointed as king, but the story's different now because David doesn't go to being overnight the king. He's just anointed as king. And it's many, many years before David becomes king. So David goes on and he uh, works in Saul's court. He plays the harp, background music, peace, calmful music. He um, begins to get involved in the army. He obviously takes down Goliath, which is, he was just a boy. And then he goes on to be a warrior in Saul's army. And they're coming back from battle one time. And this thing happens that really gets under Saul's skin. The people are singing, Saul has killed his thousands. But David, he's killed his ten thousands. Saul's killed thousands of people, but David has, has killed tens of thousands. It's a weird song, a very dark song. But Saul gets jealous, jealous of David. He begins to compare himself to David. And you see Saul continue to unravel. He eventually tries to kill David, this like competition drives him so much. And eventually, 
after a whole bunch of scenarios where David almost gets a chance to kill Saul but doesn't, Saul dies of old age and David becomes king after years and years and years and years. And David was not a perfect man at all, but he was still called a man after God's own heart. A man who was not driven by calling or comparison like Saul was, but a man that was driven by the call of God. Saul led from comparison. David led from calling. Mother Teresa, I love this quote. She says, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. Which is from that parable that we read earlier where Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servant. And, you know, we have this like ideal in our, in our minds, in our culture of the successful leader, the successful person, the success, 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 that's a dangerous word to say if you say it a lot, successful homeowner, successful influencer, whatever it is. The, the successful leader wants overnight success. The faithful servant wants, knows that, Quick growth is generally cancerous. The successful leader wants to hear well done from the crowds. The faithful servant wants to hear well done from Jesus. The successful leader is driven by comparison. The faithful servant driven by calling. And it's it's possible we see this time and time again to be successful in your outer world, but be failed in your inner world to have all the right things happen in in your career or in your church or in your house or whatever it is, but to be failed on the inside. It's It's possible to be a successful leader or pastor or entrepreneur or influencer or tradie or nurse or teacher, but be a failed human being. And Jesus has called us to take what we have been given our whole lives and invest it wisely. I love this verse, Galatians chapter 6. Um, in the message translation, verse 4 says, Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given and sink yourself into that. Make a careful exploration of who you are, not who the person next to you is, who you are. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. We are called to do the creative best we can with our life, not what we wish our life would be, not what we wish our bank account would be, not what we wish our career would be or our family would be, but what we have been given to do the creative best. It's calling, not comparison. But how do we do that? How do we do that when the world is like churning out a machine of success? of like putting people on pedestal after pedestal after pedestal. It is like this cultural flow that we must fight against if we're going to live an alternate way as followers of Jesus. I want to just suggest a counter-practice this morning, a practice that helps us get out of the way of the onslaught of like trying to be the best, do the best, achieve. And it's the practice that's been around for millennia and the practice of Sabbath. The practice of Sabbath is one day a week, out of, one day out of seven, you take to stop work, to rest, to play, and to pray. Incredibly countercultural for 
us in our moment. And the practice came out and it was instituted in Israel when they were freed from slavery, where seven days a week they were to make bricks. Bricks, bricks, bricks. Their whole worth was about how many bricks they could make in a day. You were constantly comparing yourself to the person next to you about, did I make as many bricks as them? Did I make enough bricks? I am a brick machine. And so for the slaves to come out and one of the Ten Commandments, such grace, one of the Ten Commandments that God gives his new people, this new nation he's starting up, is to take a day off to stop. And that is incredibly powerful. I am not a machine. I am not how many bricks I can produce. I am more than that. It's a reminder that if I did nothing, Jesus still loves me the same. And it's a reminder that if I stop, that the world goes on without me. The world doesn't revolve around me. Now, if you are interested in that, we will continue to talk about Sabbath from time to time. But um, if you're interested in exploring that, come. I can point you in some different directions. But that is one of the best ways to get out of the rat race of achieving and growing more and being more successful and being better than the next person because it reminds myself that I am just a human. And Jesus doesn't expect anything more from you than to be completely human-sized. And he doesn't expect anything more from you than to be completely yourself.